Good morning. I'd like to invite you to stand and grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's a pew Bible in front of you. The passage that we're reading from today is found, in course, in Malachi. Bruce starts, uh, I think, uh, Lesson 6 or in, a, in a series in Malachi, uh, found on page 546 in the Pew Bible. We're reading from Malachi chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, and we'll continue into chapter 3, reading through verse 5. <clears throat> so join with me as together we're going to uh, talk about what to do when evil prevails. Reading from chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, In what way have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be swift. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Father, we come to you. We know that it's a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And Father, we come before you and ask for your forgiveness for our sin, for our selfishness. We recognize that you are holy and you desire a holy worship. And Father, as we learn from your word today, help us to submit our hearts uh, more fully to you. Help us to take the, the crown of selfishness off of our head and place it at your feet. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, Bill, for leading us in our scripture reading. Before we begin this morning, let me uh, just encourage you, as we did at the beginning of this series, to uh, read through the book of Malachi. How many have read through it at least once so far? All right, several of you. How many have read through it more than one time? All right, good, good. Uh, again, you know, we're still in the, in the series. We've got uh, three more weeks after today in it, and so it's not too late. As, as part of your own quiet time or, or devotional time, whatever you may want to call it, to just read through the book of Malachi, read through it at least once or twice, and uh, in that way you, you'll just kind of get an idea of the, of the, the tone and the, what Malachi is saying, really what God is saying through Malachi, and so I just want to encourage you, you in that as we continue in this series of Malachi, a series we're basically calling Live Fully Devoted to the Lord, because that is really the heartbeat of Malachi's message uh, from God to God's people. Live 
fully devoted to the Lord. Because as we have seen, they are not living fully devoted. They are living half-hearted. As you know, today is Valentine's Day. And so in light of Valentine's Day, uh, you know, questions are a part of every relationship. Whether that's in a marriage relationship uh, or just a, a friendship or a working relationship, whatever the case may be. But it's especially true for those that are in a married relationship. You ask questions and you answer questions. And in a healthy relationship, there's this exchange of questions where you get to know one another better and everything's really good. However, you know that relationship is getting unhealthy when there's a lot of questions. I mean, one question after another, and all of a sudden, it feels like you're in this courtroom with a cross-examining attorney with question after question after question, and you just feel beat down by those questions. And here's what we've learned. When there is a, uh, a high trust in a relationship, there are fewer questions. But when there is low trust in that relationship, there are far more questions. And what we're seeing so far here in the book of Malachi is that God's people have some questions. They got questions for God. But now that we're, we're coming into the middle part of the book, they have a whole lot of questions for God. And those questions have now turned into accusations against God. In fact, notice this in your notes. I want to invite you to follow along if you want to, or you just... I'll follow along on the PowerPoint behind us, but notice what happens when our questions turn into accusations. And here's the deal. God is not afraid of our questions. Please understand that. God's like, bring them on. You got questions? Bring them on. I can handle your questions. In fact, if we're honest, most of the questions that we have for God, He's already answered for us. He's revealed the answers to those questions in His Word if we will take time to read His Word. And so, you got questions for God, bring them on. God's not afraid of our questions, but God is wearied when our questions turn into accusations. So far, the people have asked God three particular questions that we have seen so far in this study. In chapter 1, verse 2, they asked, In what way have you loved us, God? And then in chapter 1, verse 6, they asked, In what way have we despised your name, Lord? And then in chapter 1, they also ask, in what way have we defiled you? But the problem in these questions is that they have now morphed into accusations, as we're going to see today, against God's justice here in Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. They're no longer seeking answers to their questions. Instead, they're now making a statement from their questions. It's kind of like when an older brother looks at his younger brother and says, why are you so stupid? How many have been there as a parent? My wife, are you raising your hand? All right. That's not really a question, is it? When an older brother asks his younger brother, why are you so stupid? It's not like the older brother's really seeking to know, hey, share with me, why, why are you so stupid? No, no, no. It, that, that question is, is really, it's an accusation. Why are you so stupid? Quit it. 
And in the same way that the people of God now were making false accusations about God with their questions to him. And Malachi tells them in verse 17 here, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, in what way have we wearied him? The word wearied here that Malachi uses in this verse, it's... It, it describes exhaustion from hard work or hard labor. In fact, this word wearied is also interchangeable with the words annoyed or exasperation. And so the idea of God getting weary, it almost seems odd to us. After all, it, it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, speaking of God, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. So, so what's up with this that Malachi is saying? And yet God's people, Malachi says, have wearied the Lord with their questions, with their accusations against him. Well, Malachi is speaking metaphorically here. He's using a, a figure of speech that we would relate to as human beings to explain God's reaction to His people's questions and accusations. And God, basically, is tired of it. He's fed up with it. He's had enough of it. In other words, God is saying, you people are wearying, have wearied me out. I'm worn slick from all your words. And if you're a parent here this morning, you know exactly how God feels. I mean, what parent hasn't said to a child, how many times do I have to tell you? In all of this, it simply tells us what kind of people God is dealing with here in the book of Malachi. But more than that, it tells us what kind of people that we can be. What kind of people God is dealing with today. Not just in Malachi's day. Here's the question. If you could ask God some questions, how long would your list of questions be? Some of you are like, oh man, I have a very long list of questions for God. You're like, bring it on. And what would the questions be on your list of questions for God? If truth be told, most of our questions would center on either the goodness of God or the justice of God. Such as, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? But underneath that basic question of, of why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, underneath that question lie the real questions in our hearts. Such as, God, why, why do you bless them and not me? Why is life hard for me and not them? And God, why, why did you allow this to happen to me? We've all been there, right? Why did you not stop this, God? Why did you not protect me from this? And all of these questions really come down to the same question that the Israelites were asking here in chapter 2, 17. And that is, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? And let's be honest here, when we're struggling, 
when we're suffering, especially when we're struggling and suffering, we are especially prone to question the goodness of God and the justice of God. And oftentimes, these questions that we have for God, before we even realize it, they begin to morph into accusations against God. For the people in Malachi's day, this was a hard time in which they were living. Remember, we we talked about this in the very first lesson here. Economically, things were bad for God's people. Politically, the nation of Israel was struggling as they had journeyed back from captivity in Babylon, back to the city of Jerusalem, back to Judea. And let me tell you, uh, they were not the nation they used to be. The people spiritually were in decline, living half-hearted instead of fully devoted. And so many Jews had become disappointed with God. They felt like, God, man, you haven't kept up with your promises. You promised to restore us. You promised to bring back prosperity. You promised to bless us. And I don't see any of that yet. God, you're not keeping your end of the covenant. You're not keeping your end of the bargain. And so they lashed out at God. If he is the God of justice, why do we see all of this injustice in the world around us? Now, well, that couldn't be any more relevant for us today, could it? Malachi shows them, and by way of application, he shows us now, What to do when evil seems to be prevailing, seems to be winning all around us? And does it not seem that evil is winning right now in our nation, in our world? Sure it does. Does it not seem that sometimes evil is winning even in your family's life, in your life, extended, whatever the case may be? And when evil seems to be winning, we're going to see Malachi's solution to that. He gives us an answer. He gives us God's answer. And basically it comes down to two principles here. Don't accuse God of injustice, but rather trust in the God of justice. And so let's break that down. Let's look at it here. Number one, when evil prevails, don't accuse God of injustice. You see, from Israel's perspective, God has not done what he said he was going to do. He hasn't held up his part of the covenant. And so their despair over what they don't have in their lives is made worse because they think, hey, we have held up our side of the covenant. We have held up our bargain, our part, that they've earned God's blessings by living, quote, right, unlike the rest of the world that is living, quote, wrong. But as we've seen in the first half of Malachi here, God's people are delusional, to say the least. God's people are blind to their own sin. They think they're living fully devoted, when in reality, as Malachi is showing them, you're living half-hearted. And what we learn here from the people's response to God here in this particular situation Man, it's so applicable to our own lives because what we learn is when someone does not experience contentment, it's rare that they ever look inward to find the problem. You see, most people wrongly believe that their discontentment is an external problem. 
And so they think to themselves, well, if I just had more of something, less of something, or just a different something, then life would be better. My life would be grand. And so overwhelmed by this absence of blessings, the Israelites are blind to their, their own broken relationship with God, and they have become victims. Let me tell you, victims are notorious for hiding, minimizing, and ignoring their own sin. So where there should have been confessing of their sin, there now is only complaining about everyone else's sin. And so Israel looks out around them at the evil world prospering around them, a world not trying to do right like they supposedly are trying to do right, and begins to complain that God is silently doing nothing. In fact, that God's even approving of it. And God says He has grown tired of listening to that coming from the heart's of the people. He's grown tired of their words. Not because he's an impatient father. Oh no, God is long suffering as we're going to see. But because their complaints about what God has not done are false accusations about who God is. See, they're attacking his character. And God will not stand for that. Without a doubt. Again, God is not afraid of our questions. And so if you've got questions, bring them on. And as we've said, most of the answers are right here in the Word of God. He's already revealed the answers. But God is wearied when our questions turn into false accusations against who God is. And so Malachi, he confronts the people here in verse 17. He confronts them head on when he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say... In what way have we wearied you? And then Malachi tells them, In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delights in them, or where is the God of justice? Now, I want you to notice right there in those words that wearied our God, there are two false assumptions or two flawed assumptions that the people, the Israelites, are making about God. And we often make these flawed assumptions ourselves. Notice it in your notes here. First of all, God must delight in evil since he is allowing evil people to prevail. That's a flawed assumption. You see, they looked around and saw the wicked prosper, and so they falsely assumed that God delighted in the wicked. They falsely assumed that God must appreciate liars. Enjoy adulterers, celebrate oppressors, and adore thieves since he's allowing them to prevail and even prosper in their sin. Well, that is a dangerous assumption to make. Because those who were sinning and seemingly getting away with it, let me tell you, they were trading on God's patience, and those who were observing them were confusing God's patience and God's delighting in evil. This was a deep, Deep mistake the people were making about how God works in this world. And an even deeper mistake about the very character of God himself. Which led to a second flawed assumption. That God must not be just. And that's what they're attacking. is the justness of God. 
God must not be just since he's unwilling to punish evil people. In other words, if God is just, then why isn't he executing judgment against them? If God is holy, if God really hates evil, then he should stop all the oppression around us. He should fix all of the problems that we're encountering. And he should punish evildoers immediately. That's their thinking in this. But they were relying, get this, as we often do, they were relying on their observation of what they were seeing with their human eyes instead of relying on God's revelation in his word. God's revelation about what he says about himself. God's revelation about how history is going to come to a climax. You see, they forgot to read the end of the story. Now, obviously, back then, they didn't have the whole Word of God like we did. But they had enough of the Word of God to know God is holy and God is just and God does not let sin go unpunished. And they forgot about this. And they began to make these assumptions, false assumptions, that basically began to attack the very character of God. You see, they should have known that God is holy. They should have known that more than that, even, God is also a patient God. But He is also a God who judges sin and judges sinners. But these two flawed assumptions about God led to one huge flawed accusation against God. And that is, where is the God of justice? Now, it's asking a question, but again, it's not really a question. They're asking that question in rather to make a statement about God. Where is the God of justice? And the only answer that they could come up with was that God was not just. So they accused him of injustice. But Malachi came down hard on this kind of shallow thinking. He made it clear that if they really wanted the justice of God to be meted out, let me tell you, no one could stand. Of course, we're always much more demanding for God's immediate judgment on other people's sin than we are for God's judgment on our own sin. Have you found that to be a little true? I mean, let's be honest. It's good to be honest in church, by the way. And if you're a Christ follower, it's good to be honest all times. But let's be honest here. Do we truly want, do we really want God to deal justly with everyone right now? Please, I beg you, don't pray that prayer. Lord, give everyone what they deserve right now. Because we're all sinners, are we not? We all deserve God's judgment. And if God was going to deal justly with everyone, no one would stand before a holy and just God. You see, we love, oh, how we love what God tells the people back in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. Remember what God told the people? It sets the foundation for the whole book. God reminds the people, and He tells the people back in chapter 1, verse 2, I have Loved you. And it is an everlasting love. In fact, God, right here in chapter 3, verse 6, God's going to remind the people, as we'll see next Sunday, that I am an unchanging God. And so my love for you will not change, does not change, and never changes. I have loved you. And we love to cling on to that. 
So when we sin, when we sin, what do we want? We want God's love. But when they sin, oh man, we want God's justice. How ironic. When you hurt me, I want justice, and yet when I hurt you, I want mercy. When the people asked, where is the God of justice? They were really accusing God of injustice. So how then, how do we reconcile all this? How do we reconcile the justice of God with, let's be honest, with all the evil that seems to be prevailing in our world? Because there is no denying that evil reigns in our world right now just as it did in Malachi's day. So how then do you reconcile the justice of God, even the goodness of God, with the wickedness of people? Well, we find God's answer right here in the next verses of chapter 3. And specifically, the next five verses, God gives us his answer. And God's answer, get this, it centers on one person and one person only. And that person is none other than Jesus Christ. And so let me just tell you up front, the answer to the question, where is the God of justice, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. When evil prevails, don't accuse God of injustice. Instead, number two, when evil prevails, do trust in the God of justice. You see, Israel... They're, they question God's justice. And to prove that he is just, God tells Israel that Jesus is coming. You think I'm unjust? Ho, 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 hold your socks. Pull them up. Jesus is coming. That's his answer. Look what God says in chapter, verse 1, chapter 3. Look at it. Malachi says, Actually, it's God speaking here. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, twice God says, behold. We've already seen this word in the book of Malachi. Behold, which means don't miss this. Pay attention to what I'm saying here. That's the idea. This is really important. Behold what I'm getting ready to tell you. What I am telling you. Don't look away. What I'm saying is significant. Behold. And so let's behold God's promise to His people here in verse 1. And it's this. Here's His promise to behold. Justice will come through Jesus Christ in God's timing. Justice will come. That's what God is telling the people and He's telling us. Malachi is giving us here some prophecies about Jesus Christ that were, listen, partially fulfilled when Jesus came the first time and will be fully fulfilled when Jesus comes the second time. And like a lot of prophets, even Malachi here, he, he starts going back and forth sometimes uh, between the first coming and the second coming. And you don't necessarily even see it or even understand a lot of times well, what's he referring to? Because there's a dual fulfillment, a double fulfillment in a lot of these prophecies. And so this promise to behold is this. Here's what I want you to leave here with. Is that Jesus is coming. 
That's the promise to behold. And God says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, the messenger of the covenant, who in the world is that? Well, that's none other than Jesus Christ. And God is saying that Jesus Christ will come to his temple. Now, the whole point of the temple, as we have already talked about a little bit up to this point, is you know, the, the people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, brought sacrifices to the priest, and the priest would offer those sacrifices to God. That was the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the whole point of the temple was basically, if I could say it this way, was to get the people ready for Jesus coming. When Jesus came the first time, He not only came to the temple, physically, literally, He came to the temple, but He also came to fulfill the purpose of the temple, to fulfill, ultimately, the sacrifices that were being offered to God in the temple with His once and for all sacrifice on the cross. And so to prepare the way for Jesus' coming, God says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Anybody want to take a guess of who that might be? The messenger that prepared the way for Jesus' coming? Well, the idea of a messenger to prepare the way is also found later on in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where he is identified as none other than Elijah. The promise of my messenger was fulfilled when John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' first coming by preaching repentance of sin and then pointing them to Jesus. Look, he's, he's the one. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's interesting, though, what Jesus himself actually said about John the Baptist and Elijah. The disciples asked Jesus a question in Matthew chapter 17, verses 10 through 12. He says, why then do, you, do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him. The disciples were going, what? What's up with that? And then Matthew adds in verse 13, then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. What's going on here? Jesus, you're not making any sense. Oh, he's making all kinds of sense. Because Malachi's prophecy has a double fulfillment, as we already said, many prophecies in the Old Testament do. You see, John the Baptist was the messenger who came in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord's first coming. And you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, and it tells us that God will raise up two witnesses who will, get this, prepare the way for the Lord's second coming. And most Bible scholars believe that it is likely that one of those two witnesses will be none other than whom? Elijah. And so this messenger that prepares the way is both John the Baptist and Elijah. Here's the point. Here's the point. Jesus is coming. And with Jesus comes, justice is coming. Justice is coming through Jesus Christ. The people were asking, where is the God of justice? And God says, 
You want to know where the God of justice is? You just look. You just wait. Jesus is coming. And He's coming suddenly as a thief in the night. What's ironic is the people got questions for God, but now God's got some questions for the people in verse 2. you got to love it. Look at these questions that God's got for us. But who can endure the day of His coming? Speaking of Jesus. And who can stand when He appears? And the answer is, notice this in your notes, because of our sin, no one can. And yet, anyone can when they receive God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we all fall short of God's standard of holiness, do we not? You bet we do. We all are guilty of sin. And we all deserve God's wrath. And so the only way anyone can endure God's justice is to receive God's amazing grace. What the justice of God demanded for our sins, the grace of God provided in the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so if you are in Jesus Christ here this morning, in Him, by faith, then there is no condemnation for you. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes and tells us in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. He says, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he says in verse 9, since we now have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? And then Paul later on in chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, therefore, since we are justified and we have received that justification that declared righteous by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, since that is a reality in our lives, Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what will Jesus do when he comes? He's already come the first time. But we are waiting for Him to come the second time. And so think of it this way. We live between two comings. It's a glorious thing. Malachi, the people of Malachi's day were waiting for Jesus to come the first time. We, we are waiting for Jesus to come the second time. And what will Jesus do when He comes? Malachi tells us Jesus is coming to do two specific things. That He will purify His people and He will judge the wicked which means we better get ready to meet him. Notice this. Jesus is coming to purify his people. Malachi makes this point in verse 2 by saying that Jesus will come like a, a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap or a launderer's soap. Now, understand this, because this is kind of language that we don't often use a lot. The intent of a refiner's fire in fuller soap is not to destroy, but it's to purify. As the refiner removes the impurities from silver that come to the top, and the fuller or launderer removes filth from clothes, so Jesus will come to purify and cleanse his people. Jesus, in other words, he will turn up the heat. 
until the impurities of sin rise to the top and are taken away. And Jesus is going to scrub and scrub and scrub until the dirt is removed from our hearts and they are clean. And this purifying work is especially true for God's people, the Israelites, but it also applies to all who profess to be God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you realize even now, today, before Jesus comes, as we wait for His coming, even now, God's purpose for us as Christ followers is to purify your life. We have a theological word for that that we sometimes use. It's called sanctification. And this purifying process, let me tell you, it's not always pleasant. It's often painful, as the analogy of fire implies. You see, as Israel is put through the fire of tribulation in the coming days, in the last days, the impurities of sin will rise to the top and the Lord will take those away. And God does the same thing in our lives as we go through the fire, even now, of suffering and trials and pain and affliction and a difficulty. We call it testing sometimes. And God uses such trials and sufferings in our life to purify us, to purify sin from our hearts and lives, even now, before Jesus comes. But when Jesus comes, when He comes, let me tell you, we will be fully purified at the mercy seat of Jesus Christ, where every believer will experience testing as through fire before our glorification in heaven. And you can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. You say, well, what, what's the result of all this purifying work of Jesus Christ? Well, although the experience may be painful, let me tell you, the end result is beautiful. The end result is great. It's good. And we see this in verses 3 through 4 where God says, of Jesus, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. Remember the sons of Levi, they were the priests, and purged them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, that is all the people, will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Now, if you're sitting there going, yeah, okay, I hear words, but I'm not quite sure what all that means. Let me tell you, it's, this is big time. And so don't miss the significance of what God is saying right here in these verses because it's beautiful. Remember, as we've seen so far, the priests and the people, they were offering God what kind of worship? Worthless worship, were they not? And they were offering Him worthless worship by offering Him Lame sacrifices. And consequently, God, He rejected their offerings. And He says, I find no pleasure even in you. But a day is coming. God's reminding His people here, a day is coming when the Jewish people will accept Jesus as their Messiah. Because that's one of the issues right now for Israel. They have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But a day is coming when God will turn their hearts towards Jesus, their Messiah, and they will accept Him, and Jesus will purify them. Read about it in Romans 11. And He then will, and in that day, they will now offer meaningful worship. 
in righteousness and their offerings instead of being rejected by God. Get this, their offerings will now be accepted by God and it will be pleasant to Him, well-pleasing to Him. And God says, I will find pleasure in you, my people Israel. It's beautiful. It's beautiful because what that means is that God will keep His promises to Israel. Folks, and that's important even though we are not Jews. That is important that God keeps His promises to Israel. And because God keeps His promises to Israel, that means God will keep His promises to us who are the church. It's a beautiful thing to see what God is telling His people here. And by extension, these words also apply to all who experience or have experienced the purifying effect of the cross of Jesus Christ in their lives. When we are cleansed from our sins and our worship becomes meaningful and pleasant in God's sight, oh, do you realize what this means? It means you can trust in God's justice. Jesus will come. And he will come to purify his people. But listen to me. Hang on with me. Not everyone will be purified. Not everyone will experience his refining work. There will be some when Jesus comes who will experience his judgment. Which brings us to the second thing that Jesus will do. Jesus is coming to judge the wicked. The sober reality is when Jesus comes, not everyone will be refined. Some will be consumed by fire. Look what God says in verse 5. He says, And I will come near you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and the fatherless, and against those who turn away and alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And what Malachi is doing here, or God through Malachi, is, is he is emphasizing, he's highlighting all the sins of the day in Malachi's day that were afflicting the people in all of these sins can, it's not an exhaustive list, but this list can be attributed to one overarching sin that God highlights here, and that is no fear of God. This is why some people do not accept God's Son as their Savior and Lord, but instead reject God's forgiveness and salvation offered in Jesus Christ because they have no fear of of the Lord. The fear of God is a healthy thing. It's a very healthy thing. The fear of God is what humbles us. It's what breaks us. It's what brings us to our knees and to the cross of Jesus Christ to receive mercy and grace. Make no mistake, a day of judgment is coming. A day when the justice of God will be made clear for all to see. And a person's lack of fear for God in this lifetime will be turned into the most terrifying fear that you can ever imagine on this day of judgment. Malachi makes this clear later on in the next chapter, verse chapter 4, verse 1, when he says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. 
In the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. And so when Jesus comes, get this. Let this burn in your mind and in your heart. Some are refined for eternal worship, and some are consumed in eternal judgment. Most important question, though, before us, the most important question that I can ask, that you can ask and answer before a holy God is this. How can we be sure to experience the fire of refinement and not the fire of judgment? Listen, I know, I know some of you who are young, you're like wondering, the biggest question is, well, today's Valentine's Day and I don't have anybody to give a Valentine's Day to. Who am I going to give a Valentine's Day to? What am I going to do next year for school? Where am I going to go to college? Who am I going to marry? And all these things are important. In, in us as adults, as parents, we face questions all the time that are important. How am I going to raise my kids? Lord, help me. I don't have a clue. I thought I did before I had kids. Now I don't. And we have all these questions. But folks, the most important question that you and I can answer is this question right here. How can I be sure to experience the fire of refinement and not the fire of judgment? And the answer of the whole Bible, all of God's Word, is trust in the purifying mercy of God Almighty. A loving God has made provision for us to be forgiven of our sins through the cross of Jesus Christ. Therefore, salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and nobody else. Friends, Jesus is coming again. Jesus came as a Savior the first time, but He is coming as a judge the second time. Jesus came to save us from eternal fire the first time, but He's coming to light the eternal fire the second time. And so we, we now are waiting for Jesus to come again. But that doesn't mean God is slow. That means God is patient. He is a patient Father. You say, why is that? Because as a patient father, he is not wanting anyone to perish. His heart is for all to come to repentance and faith in his son, Jesus Christ. To all to come to eternal life. And he is inviting you. He is patiently holding back his wrath, holding back his judgment, and inviting you to turn from your sin and to trust in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus will come suddenly as a thief in the night. So don't wait. Examine your heart. Today, today is the day of salvation. If you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and to do so before it's too late and you experience Him as your judge. The people asked, where is the God of justice? And perhaps you've asked the same question in your own life. And I know there are some here where you have experienced tragedy. You have experienced suffering. You have experienced evil from people. Some of you have lost loved ones in tragic ways from cancer, from this or that. And, and maybe that has caused you to ask these questions. Where, God? Why, God? Where is your justice? Listen, the final answer to that question is right here. 
Justice comes for all in one of two places. The cross of Jesus Christ or the throne of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came the first time, He went to the cross to die in our place for our sins as our substitute. And that's where we see the justice of God colliding with the mercy of God is at the cross of Jesus Christ. And for those who accept the cross of Jesus, justice for the penalty of your sin has already been paid for. But for those who reject the cross of Jesus, listen to me, justice will come at the throne of of Jesus, where they will stand before Him as their judge, and He will sentence them to their eternal fate. Where is the God of justice? His name is Jesus, and He's coming. And I beg you, if you haven't already, to give Him your life and to receive His salvation so that the day of judgment will be at the cross of Jesus and not at the great white throne of Jesus. And that you would be forgiven by the blood of Jesus and not consumed by the fire of Jesus. Where is the God of Jesus? Folks, listen, His name is Jesus and He's coming again. And so when evil prevails... When you read the news on the internet, when you watch it and see it, when things appear to be upside down with the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering, don't accuse God of injustice. Rather, trust in the God of justice to make all things right in His timing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Oh, how we thank you for your timeless word to us this morning. Thank you that you are a just and merciful God who sent your Son to be our Savior. So that when He comes again, we can meet Him with the hope of eternal life instead of the dread of eternal judgment. And Father, I pray that we would not lose sight of the truth that justice is coming. And that we would look to Jesus when evil seems to be prevailing. And Father, for those who are not yet ready to meet Jesus, I pray that you would open their hearts, you would open their eyes to see their need for Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord today. It's in His name we pray. Amen. With your heads bowed and praise seems going to sing, but let me ask you, if Jesus came today, are you ready to meet Him? He will come suddenly and He could come at any moment. And the question before you now is, are you ready to meet Him? Will you meet Him as your Savior or will you meet Him as your judge? And right now, God is giving you an opportunity to respond to Him in His gospel so that He may be your Savior. Would you do that? right where you're seated, would you cry out to God to save you? Would you plead upon His mercy to forgive you of your sins and to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ before it's too late as the praise team sings? Mm -hmm.